I can't hold on to that narrative because it's not serving me. We grow physically, we age. Why don't our narratives grow with us? Why don't we allow ourselves to tell ourselves new stories about ourselves? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with change makers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is proven to help us age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about this podcast, which just won an Anthem Award, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at our guests and other fun tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more at JudyBanker.com. And our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. So in preparing for today's show, my guest told me the gap between who I am and who I want to be has never been smaller. I'm happier more fulfilled, more confident, more centered at 61 than I ever was at 16. And at 61, writer and editor Linda Lowen has fulfilled a lifelong dream. She's written her first book, a travel guidebook promoting her hometown of Syracuse, New York. Even though she's been published in the New York Times and earned national recognition as a former TV and radio producer, hosting award-winning programs on PBS and NPR station. She says that since she's turned 50, life has become downright magical. And with every year, it's only getting better. Welcome to the show, Linda. Nicole, thank you so much. <laughs> this is so much fun to talk to you. This it is a really wonderful show. Is. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you because you are like the super zestful ager. And I, I can't wait to hear, um, you know, your journey and your story about how things have become magical. I, I guess I want to start with a pretty big question, and that is, how do you understand your newfound happiness? You know, I will say this, and I'd be curious to know if other guests have talked about this. COVID was a time of a lot of self-reflection. And, uh, you know, I, 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 did some, I did some reading. I did some studying. I, I did some, some work. Um, one woman I know um, had a program that I enrolled in, and it was basically about finding your purpose. And up until that point, I had always said, you know, what do I do? What do I do for a living? And I'm a writer. I'm an editor. But I also was a writing instructor. I help many people tell their stories. And so I described myself as a writing instructor. But during this program, I did a meditation on on a on purpose on discovering aspects of yourself that you might not have considered before. And in this meditation, it came to me, 
I would stop calling myself a writing instructor. And what I would say is that I facilitate, nurture, and support groups of people in telling their stories. And once I understood, and I, you know, it was partly people telling their stories, but they weren't going to do it individually. They were, they were always going to do it in collectives and communities. And once I understood that that was my purpose, literally my life changed. And so I, I began to take writing students and form them into critique groups. And so I do literary matchmaking. That's a lot of what I do on the side. But also, too, when this book came along, it absolutely fit my purpose because the groups of people telling their stories in my hometown of Syracuse, New York, were shopkeepers, restaurateurs, um, you know, heads of nonprofits that run museums and arts organizations. And I enabled them to tell their stories through this travel guidebook. So we think very narrowly sometimes about who we are and what we do. And actually, all you have to do is broaden your perspective. And I've always said to my students, when you make room in your life, things come through. Wow. Now, let's go back a little bit. Is meditation part of your aging journey? Or have you always been someone who who is a meditator? I think I have tried to meditate throughout my life. I remember meditating in college and being really afraid because my lips kept buzzing and I thought something was going on. Then I had cancer when I was 33 and I meditated then. But again, like many of us, you know, you'll take your vitamins if you think that something is wrong. You'll pick up an exercise program if you feel you need to lose weight or whatever. Um, The the reality is, is that meditation isn't a thing that you do to achieve something, you meditate because you breathe, you brush your teeth in the morning, um, you eat, you know, two or three meals a day. Meditation, when you embrace it and you utilize it just as another aspect of your daily functioning. I mean, I did that during COVID. I will admit now I don't meditate as frequently, but I also recognize that meditation opens up a conduit. And I believe that that quiet space inside of you, again, the way I say to my students, if you open up space, things will come through. I believe that the space inside of us, whether you call it soul or whatever you call it, that meditating can help individuals access that which is already part of their path. And they just have to open up to the flow. So they I have guess, to listen. They have well, to, they have um, they have to listen. They have to quiet. They have to quiet. So is that part when you have your retreats? And we'll talk about that in a few minutes because they sound amazing. But when you have your groups of people, is that part of your curriculum, so to speak? I have done that in some of the classes that I teach online, but typically unless, like I, I, I've taught a class called Stories from the Subconscious, and I learned this technique from a fiction writing instructor where you walk down a long hallway and approach a door, and then you open it and walk through. And what you experience mm. on the other side is your, is your subconscious telling you stories. I've done that, but I only ever incorporate meditation in a class in which somebody knows what they're getting into because let's face it you know um, there are some people who are quite averse to the idea 
and they say, well, you're not going to make me meditate. So I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't force anybody to do that which they do not do. But, mm. I, but I have done retreats and then I've said to people, hey, I will be meditating or I'll be running this program. You are welcome to come and join us. It is not required. And I think that still, for some people, meditation kind of has that sort of woo-woo feel. Mm. And they think, well, I'm not woo-woo. But more and more, there is so much evidence out there, National Institutes of Health, CDC, that does indicate meditation has significant um, impacts on your health in a positive way. So again, you know, you put it in somebody's path and you see whether or not they pick it up and embrace it and carry it forward or whether they skirt it and continue on their path. Maybe it needs some rebranding, you know. I think meditation scares people. Well, Maybe they we say mindfulness. Quiet right? and, and listening. Um, do you think that there was, um, how shall I say, is there a reason that things came together? Is there some kind of confluence that you decided meditating was a good idea? Is it just COVID related or was it also age related? How did you pick up on this thing where I'm a successful writer, but I'm going to start meditating now? I think that I've always had that impulse in my background. Uh, and, and my background is a little bit unusual in that my American father uh, Brooklyn-born Jew, social Jew though, not really a practicing Jew, went over to Japan um, for work and met my Japanese mother. And so I was raised for the first four years of my life kind of nothing. And then, you know, my parents moved to a community where there was an active Jewish population. My father's boss was Jewish and he said, Lowen, that's a Jewish name. You go to temple and he started to go. And, and of course, the big family joke is that the rabbi was very good looking. He looked like he was a cross between Cary Grant and, um, you know, uh, Clark Gable. And he was single. And he said to my mother, if you convert, we can have private lessons together. So if Rabbi Pond hadn't been good looking, uh, you know, my mother wouldn't have converted to Judaism. And, and she was the little Japanese Jewish woman who converted with a vengeance. So that was my life growing up. But also at the same time, you know, we always rebel against that which our family insists we do. So when I went off to college, I thought, well, my mother's always said she was Shinto and Buddhist before she converted. So I would go to meditation groups, you know, chanting, walking in a circle, somebody banging a gong. And I remember my mother saying to me, she said, huh, she said, you meditate, you say you Buddhist. She said, that, she said, that not real. She said, that, that not real Japanese Buddhism. And so she was kind of put off because, and, and rightly so. I mean, if you, if you go to some countries, you'll see that religion isn't practiced on a Friday night or a Sunday or a Saturday, but it's integrated into everything. I mean, there are, you know, small uh, wayside temples that are tucked in the middle of urban areas. And, and so our, the Western habit of, of designating a day of worship is very different in some of the Eastern countries where um, worship is integrated in everything you do. But again, not so separate, but just part of who you are. So for me, it made sense. I find that as I get older, I become more Japanese. So I think that that, that inclination to take on meditation was sort of maybe a, a cellular memory of my mm. aging self that said, no, um, don't make it a, a worship on a specific day. 
integrate it and start your morning with it. And I will say that, you know, I, I, when I began to take it seriously and when I began to say, you know what, I'm going to put together a little altar of things that are mm. significant. You know, I went from just a little tabletop to, and I, now I have like, literally it's a three tier um, <laughs> altar. And, and it's I take a complex, it's a complex. And I, I take pictures of it and I call it my woo woo dollhouse because in the same way, we, as children, you know, girls and some boys, play with dollhouses and decorate it. I decorate my altar. And so that's why it's the Woo Dollhouse. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure. I light candles. I burn incense. I pick a mantra card. I pick this or that card. And I meditate on it. And uh, I, again, you know, I there are different types of meditation that I've experimented with. But I do believe, and I used to listen to meditation music, but then I realized, no, if you're going to do it seriously, just let the mind empty. And that's part of the problem because people say, well, I, I can't think about nothing. And it's true. You can't think about nothing. But what you do is you think about, and many meditation teachers say this, um, your mind is a blue sky and a thought is a cloud. And you can, the, the cloud can come, but if you focus on it, it'll take over your whole world. Just say, oh, that's a cloud and let it pass. Mm -hmm. And blue sky returns. Witnessing. Yeah, witnessing. It sounds like you bring, it's interesting to hear because I hear you kind of going, as you say, I'm becoming more Japanese, but I hear a playfulness too, to call it a woo-woo dollhouse. And, you know, there's this uh, vitality about it. There's a fun piece to it. It sounds like, as you're describing. I have been very serious for much of my life. And I think that that had to do with being an only child and again, um, having a, you know, straddling a culture. Because today we are much more of an accepting multicultural, uh, you know, society. When I was a child in the 60s, as many people can understand, it was a very different world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, I was binge watching Squid Game, what is it, on Netflix? Mm -hmm. and, and I thought to myself, wow, all these people look like me. Mm -hmm. And how many times in our lives, depending on who you are and where you grew mm -hmm. up, you would be among people and nobody would look like you. And so for me, I always got the impression that I wasn't good enough or I was dissimilar from everybody else. And it, mm -hmm. and it made me quiet and it made me serious because nobody would bother me if I was the smart one or nobody would tease me if I had this, that or the other talent because I wasn't going to be popular. I wasn't going to be, I wasn't classic All-American. And I think that that did shape me. So I've found that, you know, once I turned 50 and especially once I turned 60, oh my goodness, I have so much more fun and I am so much more playful. And uh, I, I do things I've never done before, which are silly, I, I know, but like, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. But I, I like dance. I dance when nobody watches. <laughs> well, you also, um, and I don't, I don't know exactly when, but you have adopted two dogs that you seem to adore. Yes. Is that right? <laughs> well, you know, I have always been a dog person, and I liked big dogs, as most of us do. And but you, you see many, um, you know, many, many, many adults of a certain age with smaller dogs, and I understand that because when my husband and I began empty nesting you know we, we had another dog that we'd raised with our daughters in the house but now when when we were alone we picked these two dogs they're like 11 pounds and 17 pounds and we call them the kids mm. and our own daughters who are 27 and 30 are somewhat <laughs> resentful of that because they were the kids and why are we and and we do we let the dogs get away with bloody murder but they're 
also, I, I think that the tendency is, is that we want to love. And when we are busy raising families, that love is, uh, you know, within the confines of our nuclear families. And as we age, I have found that adults who are, as I say, on the path or in the flow are much more comfortable expressing love as they get older, probably because it's a, it's a continuation of, of the love and the nurturing that they gave to their own children. And now what are they going to do with it? So they turn it to friends, they turn it to community, or they turn it to small dogs who are sitting on their lap as we speak. Mm-hmm. I have one right beside me. Would you talk about your hair? My hair. Okay, so it's funny that you say that because I have kept my hair short for a number of years and I think that's because I got it in my head that the narrative is as you get older, you should keep your hair short. Only, you know, only people of a certain age wear it longer. But I remember getting a haircut just before COVID hit and then like many of us, I let it grow. Also, too, just before COVID hit, for, fortunately, I had decided I wasn't totally happy uh, trying to maintain my color. Because for anybody who's Asian American Pacific Islander, you know, the black that they dye your hair with is like blue black and it looks weird. Mm. Um, and so my hair was being dyed by, by my stylist, a sort of uh, brown and it didn't quite work because I know being Asian American I can spot color on an Asian American head <laughs> and it see. doesn't it doesn't feel real doesn't feel real oh, okay so, why is that why can't they match the I, tone? I don't know I don't know you know pigmentation is a tough is a tough thing I see so I so I had already started to let it go but I also didn't get my hair cut during COVID and I here, here's the thing that that I actually so talk about a lifelong dream. I know this seems stupid. It seems shallow. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it anyway. I, I think it's I, metaphorical. Okay, it's metaphorical. So I will say this. I always saw growing up girls who would take their hair, twist it in their hands, you know, twist, 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 and then put it up in a bun and that was it. And because I had because I'm Japanese American, I was probably in fourth grade when I began to get terrible, terrible headaches and my my hair was down to my shoulders and then it was almost down to my waist and when my mother took me to see the doctor the doctor had said I remember it her hair is too heavy and this is causing her headache she needs to keep it short so I've always kept my hair as an adult chin length or higher and so I and you know the aging head let's face it we lose mm -hmm. hair mm -hmm. so I have comfortably let it grow it hasn't been too heavy for me and now it's well past my shoulders and I do that thing that I've watched my own daughters do because they're half me and half my Italian husband they twist 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 turn it into a bun and they put it up on their head mm -hmm. and I'm able to do that and you know what we don't often allow ourselves to feel like I, I because I am a feminist because I've written about women's issues I've always said well you know you don't have the right to feel pretty or you shouldn't want to feel pretty because mm. women are so much more but you know what at 61 hell if I want to put my hair up in a <laughs> bun and I have those flyaway tendrils and I think oh I feel pretty I'm allowed to do that mm. I am totally allowed to do that you know what so it's a it's an it's a an acceptance and an inviting in, like I haven't tried this. Yeah. I believe something that I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at. Does this hold water? I don't think so. This is fun. That's what I'm gonna do. Well, it, what it is is that we 
carry narratives about mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we are reluctant to change those narratives. But when we stick with a narrative that's no longer working, like, well, I am a mother of two daughters. Well, if those daughters are grown, that can't be my primary focus. If my narrative is I have jet black straight hair, well, when my hair became kinky after chemotherapy and then it started to turn gray, I can't hold on to that narrative because it's not serving me. We grow physically, we age. Why don't our narratives grow with us? Why don't we allow ourselves to tell ourselves new stories about ourselves? Which is why when I said to you, you know, the gap between who I am and who I want to be has never been smaller. I mean, that thought came to me a couple of days ago because I'm really happy with myself. And again, being Japanese, you know, you shouldn't be too proud. We're a (laughs) self-effacing culture. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Screw it. I'm happy. (laughs) Sounds like a great title, Linda. Screw it. I'm happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, I have to probably find a better first word. Yeah. We won't won't use it. Hi, everyone. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. What is your new narrative? What are your new beliefs at age 61? Ooh, that is an exceptionally good question. My new beliefs are that, oh, and I feel like crying when I say this, and I'll say this is another thing. Um, I, I have found that when I feel these certain truths, for many years, I said to people, no, no, don't hug me, don't touch me. I'm Japanese, we're not affectionate people, because that was my narrative. And again, going through COVID and some other work that I did, and, you know, some, some mental health and some, some therapy, I was able to embrace touching and hugging other people, saying I love you. And one of the things that I realized is that I live a lot inside my head, and I didn't allow my body to feel and express emotion. And once I was able to push through that and feel emotion, wow, once you start really feeling emotion, it, it, it's a powerful, it, it's, it's almost addictive, because then you want to express that to other people. So I find that 
when I I, I guess I, I feel like there's this internal meter that has developed to the point now when, when I say or recognize essential truths, I feel them in my body. And I feel this well of tears. And I know it sounds maudlin and silly, but I'm just going to say it. So you're talking about allowing yourself to feel emotion, and that's something different than your Japanese-American heritage might have encouraged, I'm guessing. Yes, and I and I also think too that that and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a broad brush statement. It it may not it may not resonate with all women, but I I found because I used to cover women's issues um, for a, a website that was owned by the New York Times called About.com, and I that was my five years every day I opened up, you know, the newspapers and magazines and online. I read about women's lives, so I I, I think if I make a sweeping generalization, apologies, but I I do find it it may be for the majority, maybe 51%, but not everybody. But I, I do feel that, um, that women are, are, are in, in other words, when we express love and affection, we do it for our partners, we do it for our, our children, we do it for our dogs, but we are really discouraged from doing that for other women except for our closest of friends. Why? Because a lot of women are uh, socialized to see other women as competition. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has happened is um, I have been able to access uh, freedom to express care and appreciation and admiration for other women and, you know, other men too. But that's a little different because, um, you know, sometimes or is people see it as flirting and I don't mean it to be. But I think that we all want to be recognized and we, we all want, um, you know, acknowledgement that who we are and what we do matters and has significance and impacts other people. And I spent a lot of years sort of thinking, well, if I compliment this person, um, I'm losing something myself. And I, and I, you know what? I will say this. I think I got this from my mother. And it's not to say that it's a Japanese thing, but my mother did leave her culture behind. She came to this country and, uh, and she was a very strong-willed woman for a Japanese woman. And so uh, I think her, her path through life was that she was always negotiating. If somebody was higher up the ladder, she wanted something from them, so she would praise them. If somebody was down the ladder, she wouldn't give them the time of day. And I think I got from her the mm-hmm. idea that if I said something about something nice about somebody, that it was, a, it was an emotional negotiation. I was trying to get something from them. So I wouldn't praise people because I felt like that was like, there was a weird energy around it. I don't have that anymore. I can say to somebody, wow, that's spectacular. You're an amazing person. I'm re- I really admire you. And mm-hmm. I, I, I can say it with true authenticity and true mm-hmm. love. And I think that that is part of the reason why um, I've said, you know, my life after 50 was magical. Why? Because I allowed that in my life and I wasn't afraid to say to other people, I care about you. And you know what the really interesting thing is? I do it regardless of what they say back to me. It's not, it's not an exchange. It's not transactional. No, it's not transactional. It is, and I don't even want to call it a gift because that, that suggests that someone's beholden unto me. No, it's just me honestly and authentically open, opening myself up to the flow of experience. And in the moment, you've done this great thing. I am happy to acknowledge you because it matters. You know, there's a theme here, which I'm sure has not been lost on you, which is freedom. You're talking about the freedom to have a hairstyle that you um, had thought of as uh, 
not appropriate for a woman of your years. You're talking about the freedom to, you know, listen as you're meditating to really do that differently than just from your head. And now the freedom to say, this is what I believe and I'm going to state it, even if you don't say back, well, you're, you're wonderful too. There's just this, and also this confidence and this belief that that's how I want to be. And it's, and it's good. Yes. And that actually comes with age because, uh, you know, I, and I was thinking about the number 61, turn it around and it's 16. And never in my life have I wanted to turn the clock back even a decade. I Today it popped up on my feed where I was and what I was doing five years ago. And I look superficially happy, but I know what was happening back then. And it was largely a facade. And it is very, very hard to change. And unfortunately, we sometimes only move out of our ruts when we're literally shaken out of them. And so in the worst of misfortunes, we are then left with two choices, up or down. And I, I, you know, I've, I've worked with some terrific teachers, meditation, self-help, and they have all universally said in those moments of great difficulty, those offer the best lessons. You don't learn from success. You learn from failure. Mm-hmm. And have you heard the expression, life is brutal? No, that's great. Mm -hmm. It's not mine. It's uh, Glennon Doyle's. Yes, Glennon Doyle. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, so oh, this is the question that came to mind. Do you think you would have been able to write this really interesting, fun book 10 years ago? I think that 10 years ago, because that was actually when I was building my career as a writing instructor, and that was a, a shift. At, at 50, I started teaching others to write after having written for 20, 25 years freelancing. I think that a lot of when we start things, particularly women, we have to do it absolutely perfectly. I, I actually wrote a piece about women and golf and business that a guy will grab a pair of clubs and he'll join, you know, a captain and crew or a fundraising golf thing and not really be able to golf. Whereas a woman will say, well, I've got to take clinics. I've got to work with a pro. I've got to perfect my swing. I got to get the right outfit. Women are very, very concerned about getting it right. Um, and I think that 10 years ago, if I were writing this book, I would have tried to be too much of a writer. In other words, it had to be just so and the words and everything. And, and this book, I mean, I, I would say this in the same way we're conversing here on zestful aging. I think that the book is a conversation of, hey, come with me. Um, you know, I, I've lived in this town for 35 years. These are the things that are uniquely Syracuse. And, and I tell people that, that if you're looking for a book that's the best of, well, it's a book. So it's always going to be six months behind the time. So number one, it's not a best of. We we have local media to pro provide that. But number two, everybody in their hometown, so I'll just say, I'll just say Syracuse because my hometown is Syracuse. I often hear people say things like, oh, you know, I had such a great time or that was such a cool meal or this was such an interesting event that I forgot I was in Syracuse. And that is considered, you know, the pinnacle of, oh, well, that must be great. And, and, I, and I say to people, that's not this book. 
you will always know you're in Syracuse mm -hmm. because these things couldn't happen anywhere else in the world. And the th that's the other thing. You know, it's sort of like I was, I had the opportunity to do a dissertation on my hometown. I'm getting all of these little details and it's like earning a PhD, all the research that went into it. And I did it very quickly too. I did it in a hundred days roughly because I had a break in my teaching schedule and that's the only time I could give to it. So I immersed myself in my city and uh, did things that I said, well, yeah, I've done that before. I don't need to do that again. Yeah, you do, because things change in five to ten years. But it had this feel, as I was watching your uh, social feed, that it wasn't a dissertation in the I'm gathering data, and I'm going to analyze it and then give you the results. You look like you were just a kid in a candy store. I did feel that way, and I actually had a lot of people say, hey, can I come with you and experience that? And yeah, I, I did have different people come uh, uh, with me. I'll, I'll say this, just like anything else, it helps if you are with an individual who is well-versed in that culture. So I have a friend, and I'll say her name, Judy. And she took me up to a section of Syracuse called Tipperary Hill, which is, you know, it was, it was uh, Irish immigrants uh, populated it. It's now a, a really interesting blend of folks. But Irish influence up there is incredible. For example, there's an upside down stoplight. Um, red is not on top. Green is on top. They say it's the only stoplight in the world that way. Um, there's a story behind it. You have to buy the book to read it, uh, to know it. Um, there, there's an incredible pub called Coleman's, which is just, uh, it's just, it's, I, I'll say it, it's magical. And there's actually even a little tiny door for the leprechauns to come through. There's also a, a monument called the Stone Throwers Monument, which has to do with the light and why they made the light green on top and red on the bottom. You've got figures po poised to throw stones. This is a, a sculpture that the community put together. And, and again, a, a little shop which sells Irish imports. I have driven by these things, but if I'm walking the neighborhood with my friend Judy, who's Irish, she's going to show me a side of it. Feet on the ground, lived experience. And that, I think, is the thing that we all need to do in our communities, that we need to walk through them, spend time with the people who know those areas best, and not come in as necessarily a tourist, but come mm -hmm. in as a, hey, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I want you to show me what I'm missing and I'm open to anything you have to say about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as an insider. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. Wow. I mean, it's been such a, uh, it, it's been so wonderful watching your transformation just through social media, which of course has its own filters, but just watching you, you know, at the beach, at your retreats, and it's so evident that you are loving life. You know, I do love life, and the thing that I, I have done radio, and I have done television, and I remember after doing uh, local TV in Syracuse, that that's when I go grocery shopping. Why? Because I had a full face of makeup, and I, I would run into people, and they would stop me, and I would talk to them, and I thought to myself, well, I can't go out without my face. How many women actually do say that in real life? A number of us do. The thing that has been very liberating about the hair, letting it go gray, letting it go long, uh, about aging, you know, I, I look the way I look, okay? 
Yes, I will say this. I am Asian American, so I, you know, my skin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I still get, I still get pimples at sixty-one, so I don't have too many wrinkles. But I, I don't, I don't, as a rule, wear makeup. I don't, as a rule, fuss with my hair. And I think that part of it is, and it took me a very, very, very long time to understand this. When we are self-conscious, we are constantly looking to other people for our affirmation. When we are comfortable with, hey, this is me, I'm fine, we are spending time with other people and not expecting anything from them that validates us. And I have been, probably in the past, a person who may have led with her needs. And I used to have, I mean, you would not believe the number of friends who I used to have who were high maintenance, incredibly needy people. I was drawn to them. I liked them. I liked the drama. I liked the energy. And then I had cancer when my youngest was nine months old and my oldest was uh, three months old, three years old. And at 33, when you have cancer, it really changes your life. And I became a very different person. And all those people dropped out of my life. Why? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. once you go through the drama of cancer or any sort of health-related situation for you or a loved one, all of a sudden, the truth of the matter is it's pretty obvious what matters and what doesn't matter. And 98% of life's dramas are largely lived and played out in the head. And once I could let go of that... And, you know, again, I'm building on it successively. None of this is, uh, none of this is instantaneous. I'll just say this because I did talk earlier about the Woo Woo Dollhouse. Um, a good friend of mine who has, has, has done readings for me in the past uh, and, and she's guided me to some pretty interesting things. She said to me one year, she said, you need to see a shaman. And I'm like, I'm not going to go see a shaman. I'm Japanese Jewish. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, the indigenous folks. But I, I thought, okay, why am I poo-pooing her? So I did. I actually went and saw a shaman. I did the research. I drove two hours to see a woman who was a shaman. And as I, I, I went into her office, it was in like, you know, a, a typical uh, office complex and a typical office building and a typical office. And there she's got a massage table that's covered with drapes and she puts crystals on my body. She burns incense and she sings and chants. And I'm crying hysterically. At the same time, my rational mind says, this is ridiculous. Come on, whatever. Mm. And when I went out, nothing radically different had happened. But as it turned out, I had tea with the friend who'd said, go see the shaman because she lives two hours away. And she said, what do you think? And I said, you know what? I said, I'm not sure, but things feel slightly different. And as I was driving home, I stopped at a rest area on the thruway. And it was really weird because all of a sudden, everybody that I passed, it was almost like their their necks were on a string and everybody snapped their neck up and looked at me. And, and this happens quite a bit in my life ever since I saw the shaman. When I'm in the flow, I mean, I... I'm not kidding. I've I've literally gone to like McDonald's where somebody gave me free coffee. I was shopping in a, in, a, in a crystal store where a man said, I feel called to give you this. He gave me a big amethyst crystal. I mean, things just come my way. And it's the it's the weirdest, weirdest That's thing. That's the magical you're but talking about. It, it is the magical. But all of this has to do with I when I meditate, I center myself. When I meditate, ego gets out of the way because worry and concern and fretting, that's all ego. And when you let go of that and you say, yeah, my hair is crazy. I don't wear makeup. That's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm dressing more like a hippie these days because you know what? I want, I, I love that time in my life. And, uh, and, 
as long as we don't lead with fear and we don't lead with need for other people. Hi, we just met. Am I beautiful? Am I attractive? Do you find me interesting? Am I funny? Mm-hmm. I mean, when we do that, we are burdening other people with ourselves. It's so much more free mm-hmm. to interact There's with somebody. That word again. Yeah, yeah, burden. And and you know what? When you meet somebody and you, I mean, you do feel them. You do feel energetically whether they're going to suck you dry or whether they're going to um, bolster you. And I will say this, I have, I have worked jobs, I've worked with people where from the outside it looked very successful and I did not realize how much stress I had put myself under because everything looked good. But when I left those jobs, when I started, you know, doing things on my own for myself, all of a sudden everything shifted. And part of the problem is, and again, you know, as we get older, I think we feel that we, it's okay to do things by ourselves. It's okay to do things for ourselves and by ourselves. When you don't have to worry about a workplace or, um, co-workers expecting of you and you start to skew who you are to who you believe you need to be, you don't do the things that you feel called to do. You do the things you feel you should do. And again, it's should and it's a burden. If it's possible to release yourself from that and just say, like for a very long time, I believed I had to work a job that made me upset or, or cry perhaps because an old boss told me that no worth job, no job worth having is, mm. is a job worth crying over. A job worth having is a job worth crying over. She told me this uh-huh. when I was 25 years old and it literally took me the next 35 years to understand, wow, why do you do things you don't like to do? If you don't mm. like to do, I mean, why? That's not, that's not good. But I was told that and I believed it because this woman was my mentor and she was five years older than me, the, the most successful person in the place I worked. I believed her and I held this narrative for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of things that I didn't like to do because that was the kind of work I thought, well, I'm doing a good yeah, job. Shows your dedication. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So much good stuff. Linda, where can people learn more about you, your retreats, your book, and all of your good stuff? I think the easiest way to find me is at my name, lindalowen.com. Mm-hmm. Through that, you can you will probably be led to, um, I, I offer, I occasionally offer online writing classes or I point people where they can go and find my online writing classes. People typically say, oh, I've always wanted to write. So that's what I called the website, alwayswantedtowrite.com. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic is, you know, in a, in a place where we aren't worried about this or that variant rolling around, I offer seaside retreats, writing for, for women, um, usually a week long. And that is at a website called struckbywriting.com. Mm, what, a great, what a great name. Thank you so much for being with me today it was such a such a pleasure and just uh really enjoyed hearing about your zestful aging journey thank you for creating a space where zest and enthusiasm and excitement about growing older isn't laughed at or sneered at but is celebrated you have given the world such a wonderful gift nicole thank you oh.
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.